Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 26, the end of Exodus chapter 25. Prior to the beginning of this lesson, a video was shown entitled, The Tabernacle. This video is produced by Entertainment for Eternity and may be obtained by contacting them through www.visionvideo.com that is www.visionvideo.com Okay, let's go back now after we've witnessed this movie and let's start to look more carefully at some of these sacred furnishings from the interior of the Wilderness Tabernacle. In order to do that, we're going to reread some sections of Exodus 25, a little bit at a time. So tonight, for instance, we're going to begin at Exodus 25, verse 10 through 22. Verse 10 through 22. It says, They are to make an ark of acacia wood, three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide, two and a quarter feet high. You're to overlay it with pure gold, Overlay it both inside and outside. Put a molding of gold around the top of it. Cast four gold rings for it and attach them to its four feet. Two rings on each side. Make poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold. Put the poles into the rings on the side of the ark. You'll use them to carry the ark. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They're not to be removed. Into the ark you're to put the testimony which I'm about to give you. You're to make a cover for the ark out of pure gold. It's to be three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet high. You're to make two keruvim, cherubs, of gold. Make them of hammered work for the two ends of the ark cover. Make one cherub for one end and one cherub for the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the ark cover at its two ends. The cherubs will have their wings spread out above so that the wings cover the ark and their faces are toward each other and toward the ark cover. You are to put the ark cover on top of the ark. Inside the ark, you will put the testimony that I'm about to give you. There I will meet with you. I will speak with you from above the ark cover, from between the two cherubs which are on the ark for the testimony, about all the orders I'm giving you for the people of Israel. Okay, now we're going over the next few sessions. We're going to read all about the gold and the silver and the bronze used for the tabernacle. We're going to get into the precise amounts a little bit later in Exodus, but for now, just know that the total weight for all of these metals approached eight tons. Now, where did they get that huge quantity of precious metals considering they were out there wandering around in a barren no man's land. They brought it with them from Egypt. God told Israel to strip Egypt before they left. To ask the Egyptian people for gold and silver and those Egyptians were more than happy to give it to them just to get rid of those Hebrews and their God who had nearly destroyed Egypt. So, we don't have to go forward with any amount of skepticism about this. Let's, 
let's get an idea of just how easy it would have been for Israel to contribute this much precious metal, to have it handy. It would have taken less than a twelfth of an ounce from each Israelite to accumulate the eight tons. That's the equivalent of about one small earring per person. And it's unimaginable that they didn't have several times more than that per person. Now, God's instruction begins in verse 10 with the holiest furnishing of them all, the Ark of the Covenant. And this is to be located inside the holiest room of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the back room, if you would, of the tabernacle. Here's the tabernacle. This is the courtyard outdoors. This is the tent. This is the front room of the tent. This is where you enter. This is the back room of the tent, the Holy of Holies. Now, the ark symbolized God's presence and his throne. The ark structure, we're told, was made of acacia wood. This is a very hard, dense material found in ample supply in desert regions, especially the uh, Arabian Peninsula. The Hebrew word for the acacia tree is shittim, S-H-I-T-T-I-M, shittim. Okay, the ark was slightly less than four feet long, right? a little over two feet uh, wide and about two feet deep. Right? Now, most Bibles... Most Bibles will express all the measurements of the tabernacle and its furnishings in cubits. Right? But most scholars disagree on precisely how long a cubit is. Their estimates range from just under 18 inches to almost 21 inches. Why? Because a cubit was a common measurement among most of the peoples of Asia uh, and the Middle East, and it was basically the length of an arm from your fingers to your elbow. So depending on how big of a people you were a part of, it varied. All right? And therefore, it generally goes from between 18 to 21 inches. That's part of the problem. Now, therefore, we only know the approximate measurements of the tabernacle itself and, of course, of its furnishings, let's say, plus or minus 10%. So we're, we're pretty close. Now, technically, the ark itself was just the rectangular chest portion of it. Right? Just this, just this bottom part down here. Right? Um, because the lid was a totally separate item called the mercy seat. This was the thing with the cherubim, all right, the cherubs on it. Yet in common terms, and usually so in the Bible, when the ark was referred to, it simply meant the whole thing, chest and top. Now the ark was covered in gold, inside and out. The mercy seat, the lid to the ark, was a solid slab of gold with two cherubs on top. In Hebrew, this lid is called kaporet, right, which means 
place of atonement. Okay, This is because in verse 22, God says it is there that he will meet Moses to give Moses instructions for Israel. It will also be the place where on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest will stand in front of the ark to atone for the sins of all Israel. Now, the reason we call the lid the mercy seat is because the ark is symbolic of God's throne, the place where the merciful God sits and accepts the yearly atonement for the sin of the people. Now, the Keruvim, all right, the cherubs, which are the predominant feature of the mercy seat, are interesting creatures. We're told that God posted cherubim at the Garden of Eden, at the gates to the garden. All right, and that the living creatures or the living beings that we've discussed before in here, those heavenly spiritual creatures that were identical to the symbols of the four dominant Israelite tribes, one, lo one located at each of the four sides of the tabernacle, are considered by Jewish sages to also be cherubim. So it's kind of a class of spiritual being. So not surprisingly, we find some kind of representation of them here in God's holiest place on earth. Remember I told you that the Garden of Eden was a much earlier and the first earthly model of God's heavenly tabernacle, which of course is what the wilderness tabernacle is. Now, we must be clear that no one knows for sure what the cherubim look like. Okay, the, the pictures we see of them today tend to range from chubby little babies with short rings, short wings and an afro, giant afro usually, all right, to mature man-like creatures with wings that stretch from their feet to above their heads. And the, the various representations we have today of the ark and of the mercy seat with his cherubim are just best guesses as to what it might have looked like. If the ark's ever found, I guess we'll know for sure then. Now, the ark is so holy that once made and put into commission, it's not ever to be touched by human hands again. Even on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies and stands before that ark, he had to stay well back and from a distance of about six or seven feet, about two meters, he would sprinkle and spray the sacrificial blood onto the ark to purify it. Because the ark was not to be touched. And therefore, that's why we're instructed that there were rings that were to be put on it and these poles inserted through it and they were to never be removed. Later in the scriptures, we read of an incident whereby the ark, while it was being carried by those poles, is about to fall over. Right? And one of the ark bearers instinctively puts up his hand to steady the ark, and he dies instantly. Okay. Now, notice something important here. In verse 22, we're told that God's spirit comes to rest over the ark. Not on the ark, okay, but above and between the cherubim attached to the kaporet, 
right, the lid when he wants to speak to Moses. Even the ark is not holy and pure enough that the actual presence of Jehovah's holiness can come into contact with it because even though it's God's design, human hands made it. Remember, at this point in history, the Holy Spirit of God did not dwell in man. He dwelled above man. There's reference to being among men, but certainly not in men. Today, since Pentecost, Shavuot, the same Holy Spirit that hovered above that mercy seat dwells in us believers. That's scary. That's scary. I mean, I think we need to realize that the concept of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in a man was ludicrous to those wandering Israelites, just as it is, just as it was to the Jews of Christ's day. I mean, great pains were taken, both in ritual and in the design of the tabernacle and the temple to make sure that God's spirit was kept separate from men. Even on that one day each year that the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies, neither neither the people nor the current high priest was even sure he'd come out alive. This was no comfortable, peaceful ritual that high priest went through. He was afraid, and so were the people. Sometime along the way, as a matter of fact, they even took to tying a rope around the ankle of the high priest so as to be able to pull him out if his stay took longer than it should have. Because if God had killed him in the Holy of Holies for whatever reason, they would have had no way to retrieve that body since only the high priest was allowed inside, even the replacement high priest, by the way, could not have pulled that body out because high priests could never come come in contact with the dead. So I suspect that had they even believed such a thing as having God's spirit dwell inside a man was even possible, can you imagine how terrified they would have been at that prospect. Once the apostles finally understood this principle, we see that they became different men. Fearless, bold, uncompromising in the truth of the gospel. Most of us take this for granted and, and don't consider as we should the mystery of this truth. I mean, I think maybe we need to be in awe, not a little bit terrified, that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. Now, please understand that the idea of the tabernacle as God's dwelling place is figurative. God was not confined to a cloth and animal skin house that needed to be carried around whenever he wanted to go somewhere. God is spirit. He can be everywhere at once or absent from every place at once and every possible condition in between. The tabernacle was built 
so that mankind could understand certain aspects, present and future, of Yehovah, and so God could meet with Moses and once a year the high priest at the appointed times. By our modern Western way of thinking, the tabernacle was not a house, it was more of a conference room. Right? where people came together at specific times for specific purposes. Now today, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in Yeshua's disciples, we don't have to wait until appointed times to commune with God, like Moses did. Okay? We don't have to go to a specific building. We don't have to wait until church or synagogue is in session. Okay, Where we are meeting today, is not God's house. Neither, my friends, is a church building or a synagogue God's house. You're God's house. You. Okay. We, individually and collectively, are the house of God. It has nothing to do with buildings or schedules. I mean, look at Hebrews 3.6. Don't turn there. What it says is, what Paul says is, but Christ is as faithful as a son over God's house, and we are God's house. So that's not allegory. All right? That's not me saying it. The ark was the means and the place by which God dwelled among men. This was symbolic and prophetic of Yeshua, the Messiah, who would dwell among men. God, physical, in the flesh living among men. Even what went inside the ark uh, prefigured who Christ was. The budding staff, the jar of manna, bread from heaven, okay, and the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the Word of God. A staff, also sometimes called a rod right, in the Bible, was the sign of authority. Okay, There was great unrest among the tribal leaders when Moses announced that Aaron would be the high priest. I mean, the high priest carried tremendous power and authority and in essence was the head of the government over all Israel. So the tribal leaders each wanted to become the high priest. The fact that Aaron was Moses' brother had something to do with the problem. Because with Aaron and Moses both being Levites, tribe of Levi, power would have rested only with the Levite clan, which it did until Moses passed away and Joshua from the tribe of Ephraim took over. So to settle the squabble among the tribal leaders, God had these tribal leaders each give their staffs to Moses to place, who placed them in front of the ark. Aaron's staff sprouted and budded almond blossoms to indicate that Aaron was God's choice for high priest. So, the budding staff symbolized the office of high priest and the tribe from which all future high priests were to come, the tribe of Levi. Christ, we are told, is our high priest even though he is not a Levite. He is from the tribe of Judah. We won't get into all the significance of that just yet, but we will. Now, the jar of manna, that heavenly food sent from God during the Israelites' entire time in the wilderness, symbolized life, the bread of life. 
the source of real sustenance of godly life, not just mere existence, is Christ, who called himself the bread of life. And this is important to him to understand. Yeshua says, I am manna. That's what he's saying. And of course, inside the ark lay those stone tablets of the ten davar, the ten words that were and remain the underlying principles behind all of God's word to mankind. Those words that are written on every believer's heart. And of course, John tells us that Christ is the word. So we have Aaron's staff, which symbolizes the authority of the high priest, the jar of manna, and the stone tablets, all inside that ark. Let's move on to Exodus 25. We're going to read a few more verses, starting at verse 23. Exodus 25, 23 through 30. You are to make a table of acacia wood three feet long, 18 inches wide, 18 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. And put a molding of gold around the top of it. Make around it a rim, a hand breadth wide. And put a molding of gold around the rim. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners near its four legs. The rings are to hold the poles used to carry the table. They're to be placed close to the rim. Make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and use them to carry the table. Make its dishes and pans and bowls and pitchers of pure gold. On the table, you are to place the bread of presence in my presence, always. Well, beginning in verse 23, the blueprint for the table of showbread, as it's often called, is uh, described. The table of showbread was placed on the north wall inside the holy place, right? the room adjoining the Holy of Holies. And just as with the Ark of the Covenant, the table itself is to be fashioned from acacia wood as a frame and then covered in pure gold. The table was to be three feet long, about a foot and a half wide, and about two and a half feet high. And upon it was to be placed 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this strange sounding word, showbread, is just is just one attempt to translate the original Hebrew for what these loaves were called, which is lechem panim. Lechem is an ordinary Hebrew word meaning bread. Panim is a strange word. It's very difficult to translate. But it means, and is often translated as face. But face meant something a little different than when we think of that word today. In the Bible, when someone's or God's face is upon you, it means his presence is with you. That person or or God is there. So sometimes the showbread is called the bread of his presence. That is the bread of God's presence, which is more literal. Now later, an exact recipe will be given for this holy showbread. And upon each Sabbath, the bread is to be exchanged for 12 fresh loaves. And the old loaves will now be eaten by the priests within that holy precinct. In other words, they could not take the bread 
outside of the area of the tabernacle. They had to eat it there. But don't confuse this now, because sometimes it is, does get confused, with that special bread that the Israelites baked for their own use every Sabbath. Challah bread. Right? Which the Israelite families ate around their own tables. Showbread and challah bread are entirely different things. Now, for one thing, even though it's not explicitly stated in the Bible, the showbread was unleavened bread. Okay, It had to be, because it was a meal offering, and it was a requirement of all meal offerings that no leaven, no yeast be used in it, because leavening symbolized sin. Challah bread, however, could be leavened bread. Now, the Bible really doesn't give outright much detail on the symbolic reason for this showbread. As a result, we have many explanations and theories of what it may represent, most of them incorporating the idea that these loaves represent the bread of life and therefore represent the ministry of Christ as his being the bread of life for the church. Perhaps. Perhaps. The problem is that that explanation eliminates the rather obvious all right, the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes, all right, being in God's presence, hence the name, the bread of his presence, all right, and, and, and that he would provide a sinless source of sustenance, that's the idea of using unleavened bread for them. Now, of course, this sinless source of sustenance we now understand was a shadow of Christ. But this particular source in Exodus 25 was for the 12 tribes of Israel represented by there being 12 loaves. This was not for non-Hebrews. The covenant, the tabernacle, everything was for and with the 12 tribes of Israel. So let's just keep reminding ourselves that as St. Paul said, we those of us here who are Gentiles have been joined, grafted into the covenants of Israel. They're not our covenants, per se. Now, interestingly, we're told that wine was also placed on the table with the showbread. Wine and unleavened bread. Now, what image does that conjure up? Yeah, communion. All right, let's uh, read a little further. Let's read Exodus 25, 30 through 39. Exodus 25, 30 through 39. On the table you are to place the bread of presence in my presence always. Now you are to make a menorah of pure gold. It's to be made of hammered work. Its base shaft, cups, ring of outer leaves and petals are to be of one piece with it. It's to have six branches extending from its sides, three branches of the menorah on one side of it, three on the other. On one branch are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a ring of outer petals and leaves. Likewise, on the opposite branch, three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a ring of outer leaves and petals, and similarly for all six branches extending from the menorah. On the central shaft of the menorah, are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a, its ring of outer leaves and petals, where each pair of branches joins the central shaft is to be a ring of outer leaves of one piece with the pair of branches, thus for all six. 
The rings of outer leaves and their branches are to be of one piece with the shaft. Thus, the whole menorah is to be a single piece of hammered work. Make seven lamps for the menorah and mount them so as to give light to the space in front of it. Its tongs and trays are to be of pure gold. The menorah and its utensils are to be made of 66 pounds of pure gold. See that you make them according to the design being shown you on the mountain. Well, now we come to the golden lampstand, as it's often called, which stood on the south side of the holy place opposite the table of showbread. Now, the Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. Technically, just as the Ark of the Covenant is just the storage chest itself and not the, the lid, that mercy seat, so the menorah is a candelabra. It's a lampstand. That is, it's a holder of candles or oil lamps. But the candles and oil lamps are separate pieces, just as the mercy seat is separate from the Ark. A menorah technically does not provide light. It just provides a place for the sources of light to sit. Now, the original menorah weighed something close to 70 pounds. Uh, it was made, as we're told, from a talent of gold. It was not melted and poured into a mold as most precious metalworking was done back then and still done today. It was virtually sculpted from a large hunk of gold in which the gold had been beaten and hammered together. Okay. The tabernacle's menorah was the sole source of light for that 30-foot long, 15-foot wide, 15-foot high room, the holy place it resided in. The menorah held these seven oil lamps, sat atop it here, that used a special olive oil as its fuel. The menorah had a central stem and then three branches on each side of the stem, giving it a total of seven. So these seven oil lamps that sat atop had to be kept burning night and day. The lamps were never to go out. And it fell to the priests to be certain of that. Now the primary decoration on the menorah is an almond at its various stages. All right. um, why an almond? Well, notice the connection to the staff of Aaron that budded with almond blossoms and then produced almonds. The Jewish sages say that the almond tree was the first fruit to blossom in the spring. Some also say that because that dead stick that was Aaron's staff came to life and blossom produced fruit, almonds, that the almond is a spiritual symbol of resurrection. I'm inclined to go along with that because first fruits and resurrection couldn't be more prophetic and emblematic of the ministry of Yeshua. Now the menorah probably is the Jewish people's most recognized symbol outside of the Star of David, all right, and especially so today. Certainly the menorah is the oldest symbol of the Jewish people, dating at least a thousand years and probably more, well more, before the Star of David ever came into existence. 
Okay. Rabbis and Hebrew sages have made some interesting speculations about the menorah. And I find one of the most intriguing is the obvious similarity that a menorah has to a tree with branches. Okay. Several rabbis say that the menorah may well represent the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. I think that is entirely possible. Now, despite what most Gentiles might expect, the seven-branch menorah, the, the tabernacle or temple, temple menorah as it's called, is in our time never lighted in an observant Jewish household. The reason? It was only meant to be a special implement for use in conjunction with the temple. Okay. In some ways, to the Jews, it is a reminder of the temple and their hope for the future temple. So, since there has been no temple for over 1900 years, to light the seven-branch menorah to many Jews is ir- makes it irrelevant. I mean, no temple, no need for a menorah. So, most Jewish homes today don't even have a seven-branch menorah. However, there is, of course a nine-branched menorah. You won't find it mentioned in the Bible. The nine-branched menorah came about a little over a century before Yeshua was born. It was invented in the celebration of Hanukkah. If you look behind you, you'll see a a better representation of one sitting on our our desk back here. This was to commemorate the taking back and purifying of the Holy Temple by Judas the Maccabee, who led the Jews in rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes was a vicious puppet governor for Rome, who ruled over the Holy Lands, and he had occupied the temple, removed many of the incredibly valuable items inside of it, desecrated it by putting a statue of himself in the form of Zeus, the sun god, in the Holy of Holies. And then he sacrificed a pig to the statue. Okay. When the Jewish rebels finally took the temple back, because the priests had been killed, there, had, there wasn't a sufficient supply of properly prepared and consecrated olive oil for the menorah lamps to burn more than one day. Okay. But that one day supply that, that did remain miraculous, miraculously burned for eight days until more could be made. Therefore, the eight branches of this special menorah represent that eight-day miracle, and the ninth branch is used to light the other branches from. The observant Jew usually does have a nine-branched menorah, a Hanukkah menorah, or Hanukkah, and they do light it during Hanukkah, which is just a few days away. Now, it should be noted that the time of year we have chosen to celebrate Christ's birth coincidentally happens very near the same time as Hanukkah. Now I'll tell you this. Sometime in the not-too-distant future when the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, just as the end-times prophecies say will happen, I'd sure like to have the seven-branch menorah concession. Because that temple is going to suddenly become very relevant again and a whole lot of Jews 
probably Christians too, are going to want to buy seven-branched menorahs. The the tabernacle menorah and its lamps symbolize the light of the world. Christ, the true and pure light. Now this concept of the menorah symbolizing the light of the world is especially noticeable in Revelation 2 and 3 where the church, which is we're just the earthly extension of Jesus, is symbolized as a menorah, or in most of our Bibles it will say as a golden lampstand. Okay? And we're warned that our light, our menorahs, will be taken away if we do not adhere to our first love, Yeshua. Our purpose as believers is to be light to a dark world. If we're not that, then we're of no use. Okay? We're like menorahs without oil. Menorahs that are supposed to be lit day and night, but our flames have died out. Now next week we're going to start studying the actual tent sanctuary itself, starting in Exodus chapter 26.